This week on the Golf Digest podcast, we're talking about Caddyshack. Specifically, we're talking about a new book called Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. It's a great book by Chris Nashawati. Chris is here in studio to talk about the book and some of the great stories from the making of the iconic movie. All coming up next on the Golf Digest podcast. Welcome to the Golf Digest Podcast. This is Sam Wyman. Joining us today is Chris Nashawati, who is the author of a new book called Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. It is, just like it sounds, uh, a story about the making of uh, one of the great movies, basically in comedy, but definitely in golf. If anyone who says Happy Gilmore is a better movie than Caddyshack uh, is clearly clueless, because Caddyshack, I think, stands above all. And what's interesting from talking to Chris is how much of a mess... Caddyshack was at times. It wasn't entirely well received when it first came out. Um, editing of the movie was a nightmare. There's all kinds of stories about uh, various recreational drugs that uh, actors and filmmakers were making during the production of the movie. Uh, it's really a fascinating book and gives you really a great appreciation for the movie when you watch it again. So let's go to that interview with Chris Nashawati now. Okay, great. I want to welcome to the Golf Digest podcast, Chris Nashawati, a longtime film critic for Entertainment Weekly and author of the new book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. Chris, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So we are uh, days away from publication of this book. I really loved it. I enjoyed it. And I would say for people who are listening, I mean, certainly um, plenty about golf in the, in the book, but it's mostly a story of a movie and a movie that's taken on uh, you know, great importance in the culture at large, but also in in the golf world, especially uh, over the time. Uh, a lot of the book um, in the early parts are about uh, Doug Kenny, who was certainly one of the sort of masterminds behind Caddyshack and his beginnings at National Lampoon. I'm curious, just why it was important to you to sort of tell that part of the story in talking about what became Caddyshack? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question, and I'm glad you got that out of the book. Um, Doug Kenny is a fascinating figure, but the book, you know, I want to make it clear to people, it's 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 a making of a movie mm-hmm. book for sure, but it really sort of captures this 10-year period in comedy when everything was changing, um, probably from like 1970 to 1980, and, uh, and Caddyshack is sort of like the culmination yeah. of that movement, right? So you've got, um, it all starts with Doug Kenny at Harvard. He was a, an editor at the Harvard Lampoon, which is the country's oldest sort of, you know, satirical magazine. And uh, when he graduated, he and a, another guy from the Lampoon, they started the National Lampoon in mm-hmm. 1970, which became like as close to, you know, a publishing phenomenon as you could get in the 70s. Uh, it, was, it was really dirty and really funny. And it had a very unique voice. It was like a cross between Mad Magazine and The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then in around 1975, he cashed out and was instantly a millionaire um, at a very young age, in his 20s. And he decided, what, you know, what's my next chapter here? And he wrote Animal House, which became the biggest comedy of all time, mm-hmm. a Hollywood comedy of all time. It made like $140 million on a budget of like two. Right. So, I mean, it's sort of just unfathomable. So this guy was just on this tremendous hot streak. And um, coming out of that, at the same time, you had the start of Saturday Night Live in 1975. And you had, in, in Chicago, you had Second City, which was creating, you know, all the people who would go on to Saturday Night Live. So you've got these three really important uh, outposts of, of 
really cutting edge satire in the 70s. And they all come together on Caddyshack. Right. You know, Saturday Night Live, Second City, and the National Lampoon. And, and those are the voices and the stars of this movie. So I think it's interesting to get a, a taste of, you know, who were these people before Caddyshack. Sure. Um, and Kenny's also sort of a tragic figure for reasons we'll get into, I'm very, sure. Very much so. And it's interesting is, like, you have this huge pressure to follow up Animal House and what are you going to follow up with? And they arrive at this idea for uh, a movie about a, a country club and a dynamic at a country club. And so how did that idea come about it wasn't just Doug. Obviously, you talked yeah. about the Murray brothers as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the three the three writers of of Caddyshack are Harold Ramis, um, Doug Kenny, and Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray's older mm-hmm. brother. And all of the Murray boys, basically, they they grew up in this town um, on the North Shore of Chicago, uh, a very fancy town. But they were a blue collar family, and so all the Murray boys, to put themselves through Jesuit school, they caddied to. Mm-hmm. to make money for their tuition so they mostly caddied at this place called indian hill in winnetka um and and you know from the time they were like 10 i think bill murray started as a shag boy he was you know you on the driving range he'd go and like field all the balls and like get pelted uh and i think like you know the, the members were aiming for him uh so anyway you know they grew up sort of knowing what this exclusive world of country clubs was all about and how they sort of had their noses pressed against the glass, unable to be a part of that world. And it, it was just seemed like a real um, a, a, a subject that was really ripe for satire. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not totally coincidental that it's got the same for, sort of slobs versus snobs sure. theme as, as Animal right. House. They were trying to make another Animal House with this movie. What's interesting about... Um about Caddyshack and a lot of things sort of deviated from the original plan. But one is the original premise of the movie, it was this, the heart of the story was going to be about Danny and his girlfriend. And so talk to me a little bit about how the sort of uh, theme of the movie, or I should say the kind of emphasis of the movie evolved. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of a product of Ramis because he had come out of Second City, which is all it, their whole philosophy is improv comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, they take a premise and they just sort of riff on it. Um, so, yes, they had a script for this movie that would m- focused more on Danny Noonan, the young caddy. Um, and once they got on the set and Bill Murray was doing his thing and right. Ted Knight was doing his thing and Roddy Dangerfield was doing his thing and Chevy was doing his thing, they sort of realized that these guys are much funnier than the story that we had in mind. So they just sort of followed the mm-hmm. funny and shot stuff that wasn't in the script. And in fact, Bill Murray's character, Carl Spackler, the demented assistant greenskeeper, he didn't have one line in the entire actual written script. They knew that Bill was such a great improviser, they just said, Bill riffs here in right. the script. And they just knew that they'd just turn on the camera and tell Bill to go and give him an idea and he would just do it. But 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 Brian, and they all did, but Brian, who was the caddy master in the movie, yeah. uh, knew all along that Carl Spackler was was going to be his brother. Is that is that right? Well, so they originally some of the lines that Carl Spackler does, like the Dalai Lama speech, was right, originally was assigned to a different right, character. Right, right, right. And that character just didn't work out. They shot the scene and it was just terrible. So they just said, "Oh, well, when Bill gets here, uh, we'll have him do it." And he just he was so funny in the few scenes that he had that they kept giving him right. more and more and more. Like a lot of that gopher stuff wasn't even right. shot when they were in Florida shooting the movie. It's amazing is that also they had Bill for one week. 
That yeah, movie production was X months, and they had him basically for for one week. Yeah, he was just finishing up a movie, uh, like a Hunter Thompson movie called Where the Buffalo Roam. And he had like a very small window between that and his final season on Saturday Night Live. So they said, you know, on your way back from California to New York, why don't you just swing down through Florida and we'll shoot as much as we can. Uh, and that's what they did. They worked him like to the bone uh, in that one week. But then later on, they got him down on a couple of the weekends mm-hmm. while he was shooting Saturday Night Live to do some more stuff. Right, because there's also that part you talk about. First of all, like the two kind of uh, heavyweights in the movie were Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. And at one point, they realized they didn't have a scene with the two of them together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's really sort of how could you overlook that? Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, how does that happen? But yeah, I mean, they were both um, as big a stars as you could be at the time, you know, both hot off Saturday Night Live. And they, they were both so good in the dailies that the studio back in L.A. was like, hey, you guys are really blowing a huge opportunity here. Why don't you have these two in a scene? So they flew Bill Murray back down to Florida from mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live. And he and Chevy and the writers sat down in a trailer over lunch one day and sort of hashed out this idea for the scene. The great scene, which is now in Carl's shack, mm-hmm. where Chevy's playing night golf and plays through in the whole pool or the pond <laughs> thing. Um, that was totally improvised. Uh, they had an idea for what the scene was, but they really just it right. was just him and Chevy riffing. And you had mentioned that the the Dalai Lama scene was in the original script, but it was meant for another character. But another scene that was wasn't really meant to be as big as it was was the uh, Cinderella story, his little monologue when he's chopping heads off of uh, mums while he's yeah. swinging his golf club. Yeah, I mean to me that's the most memorable scene in the entire movie. Uh, it's just and for anyone who loves golf, you know the whole idea of like this greenskeeper pretending to be like the, you know, Cinderella story at the Masters is, is so great. So, um, yeah, so Bill Murray, that scene really didn't have any written lines. And Harold Ramis said to Bill Murray, he said, look, I don't know if, if, if you're going to know what I'm talking about, but sometimes when I go jogging mm-hmm. and I'm like out of gas, I'll just sort of in my own head say like, and Ramis is coming into the home stretch and here he comes, he's in the lead, he's about to win the Olympics and just to sort of make him, to motivate him. Do you do that about golf? He says to Bill and, and Bill said, I got, don't say anything else, I got it. And they turn on the camera and Bill stands in front of the flowers and he just does the Cinderella story scene in one take. That scene is in one take. It's 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 amazing. You know, let's back up for a second. Um, so you've been the film critic for Entertainment Weekly for 25 years. You've done other books before. Talk to me through the decision to do a book on this. Where was it, where was sort of the white space that you saw in, in writing about this? Yeah, so so uh, in 2010, I did an oral history on the making of Caddyshack for Sports Illustrated. Uh, it was about five or six pages long. And I interviewed everyone then. Fortunately, I did because Harold Ramis, you know, passed away in the time between that story and this book. But... Um, so I was lucky enough to interview him. But while I was reporting that story, I was interviewing all of the cast and Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and all these guys. And the stories I was getting were like amazing. I was like, this is too good for a five page story. There's so much mm-hmm. here. Right. I mean, you know, I've been on a lot of movie sets as a reporter and they're pretty boring. Um, but this is 
the one movie set that I can think of where the making of story is even better than the movie, just because it was shot in Florida in 1979. It's pretty much the gateway into America for cocaine at that time. Right. And everyone was just nuts. I mean, it was just right. a big part. It's amazing that a movie got made. Basically, right, that's the other thing is like the mess that the, well, the kind of the finished product was. But um, it sounded like from from the book, the only person that was not on cocaine during the making of that movie was Ted Knight. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 let me sort of couch that in saying the only person who wasn't either drunk or in, on some sort of drugs was him because not everyone took cocaine. A lot of people did, but like I know for a fact Bill Murray is not like a cocaine taker, so I don't want to like paint anyone with that. But yes, everyone was either drinking or getting high or like whatever except for Ted Knight who had that who would just, you know, go to bed at 8 o'clock right. every night and wake up at 7 in the morning and like make his vitamin smoothies and was clean living and thought everyone was insane. Which is amazing because, I mean, he comes across as a straight arrow in the movie and... Um, he's essentially sounds like he was a much, very much a straight arrow uh, in life, and yet he was so effective as a comedian in in portraying yeah. the straight arrow in the movie. So I think I think he gives the most underrated performance oh. in the film. I think he's a genius, um, and and he how sort of pissed off he is in that movie mm -hmm. is like very much how pissed off Ted Knight was making that movie. Not because he didn't want to make the movie, just because. A lot of his scenes were with Rodney Dangerfield, and Rodney Dangerfield was like the Tasmanian devil. He was just like, he would come into a scene and just throw out lines that weren't in the script. And Ted Knight, he was a professional sort of right. trained actor. And for him, it was like, you stick to the script. Every, you know, dotted I and cross T, you stick to that. That's what you do. And, and Dangerfield was driving him crazy. Like, they hated each other. Right. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the anger that that Judge Smales has in a lot of those <laughs> scenes is definitely like method anger. And, and Dangerfield is a fascinating character because he comes across as this sort of free spirit in the movie, but you describe him as this very, I mean, obviously had a lot of fun while making the movie, but also ex extremely insecure and kind of constantly needed reassurance that, that he was as funny as he was trying to be. Yeah, I think, I think that's sort of... Uh, the fate of a lot of comics sure. to be honest with you like i think that a lot of them are very insecure people um and dangerfield um you know he wasn't a uh, an experienced actor at all he had made one movie you know prior to this and it was you know just like a movie that no one saw and he had a small role in it but um so for him this was like a big a big new chapter of his career and he was very unsure about it and so he would get up and sort of do his thing and no one would laugh and he'd be like, I'm bombing because no one's laughing. But he didn't know that on a movie set you can't laugh right. because you'll ruin the take. So he, But he just is neuroses sort of ate at him. And the other thing about him is that, you know, he, he uh, was so untrained as an actor that there's this great scene where he's in the pro shop and, he, you know, he, he goes, uh, you know, you buy a hat like that, yeah. I bet you get a free bowl of soup, that whole thing. Um, so he was getting ready to do that scene, and, and his mark was like, when director calls action, you barge into this pro shop, and you just do your spit, your shtick. And so Harold Ramis is sitting by the camera, and he goes, action. And like, Roddy does not come through the door. And he goes, Rodney, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. Let's go. So he goes, action again. And Rod, nothing. He's like, Rodney, listen, when I say action, that means that you have to come in and do your part. He goes, you mean do my bit? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, do your bit. Do your bit. So he goes back and he goes, action again, nothing, like crickets. And finally goes, Rodney, do your bit. And he comes barreling in and nails it. 
but and every time from that point on when when rodney had a scene he just instead of saying action would say do your bit rodney <laughs> so talk to me about um you had done the oral history for for si in 2010 at that point rodney had passed on and yeah. ted knight had passed on yeah um but the process of getting everyone else which and obviously doug kenny had passed yeah. away yeah. as well the process of getting everyone else who was difficult um and how much did you end up going, you know, following up after that to do the actual book? I'm sure you did a lot. Yeah, a lot more. I mean, you know, I t- probably interviewed maybe a dozen people for the SI thing. Um, and for the book, it was closer to 60 or 70, you know, because that's when you sort of, when you're getting into Second City and SNL and the Lampoon mm-hmm. and, and you want to talk to all the, the crew people that were on the movie and Caddyshack and the studio people. So you really cast the net a lot wider. But as, as far as like the actual, like above the title talent is involved, um, you know, the two sort of most crucial interviews were Chevy and uh, Bill Murray. And Chevy was great. I mean, I think he has a real fondness for this period in his life. Um, you know, he couldn't have been hotter as a movie star back then. And Bill Murray, I mean, that's a whole different story. And we can talk about that. I mean, he is like landing a white whale. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, Bill Murray doesn't have he's obviously like a very strange and sort of enigmatic dude. But like he doesn't have the usual publicity machinery that most Hollywood movie stars have. Most Hollywood movie stars have a publicist that you can submit an interview request Mm -hmm. to and you go through the normal mechanics of that. But Bill Murray doesn't have any of that. He just has this 1-800 number. Um, And there's no outgoing message, just a beep. And if you want him to be in your movie or you want to interview him, you have to leave a message. And he may get back to you. He may not get back to you. If he does get back to you, it may be in a month. It may be in a year. Who knows? so you just sort of like cast this prayer into the void and hope that Bill Murray calls you back. So I got the number from from a friend who sort of knew him a little bit. And I had that friend also call and, and sort of mm-hmm. the number as well and say, like, you know, you can trust this guy and blah, blah, blah. So it was, I think, two days before the SI piece was due. I was in my office. It was 930 at night. I don't know why I was still there, but the phone rings and it's this, you know, South Carolina number. So I'm like, oh, God, could it be? So I pick it up and it's Bill Murray and he's like, you know, you know the voice instantly. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so what do you want to know? And in the back, I can hear like the clinking ice cubes <laughs> and like what I'm guessing is like a highball. And he just proceeded over the next hour. I mean, he just gave me so much time. He just tell me the greatest stories about the making of this movie. And uh, he couldn't have been greater. Did you try to get him again after that? Or you felt like I did. Luck, and you got him. I, I No, I didn't oh. get him a second time. I'm lucky I got so much time within the first right. time. Um, you know, because in a, in a sort of shorter story that for the magazine, uh, I used maybe three quotes of his and I had an hour on tape, sure. maybe even more. And so I, I, you know, I just got lucky that I had so much unused stuff. Right. I mean, I tried, I tried to get him. And again. he's also one of those guys where ultimately the best stuff about Bill Murray is going to come from other people talking about Bill Murray. Yeah. And I mean, so, everyone's right. got a Bill Murray story sure. and, and the, the book is really loaded with Bill Murray. Amazingly, stories. you talk about the fact that they had, there was a lot of tension between those two, between him Murray, and Chevy. Murray and Chevy prior to the actual making of the movie, they had yeah. a little blow up on sport on uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And they kind of agreed after that to be big boys on yeah. the set. Yeah, no one really knew how that was going to play out on the movie because back in 1978, Chevy had already left to become, you know, um, to follow his movie career. Um, so he had left Saturday Night Live and Bill Murray was his replacement um, on the show. And so uh, Chevy came back, I think in 78, to guest host. And everyone sort of thought that he was being a little cocky and full of himself, you know, sort of the guy who graduated to bigger and better things. And there was a lot of resentment. And Bill Murray, as the new guy, sort of saw himself as the the one who was going to hash it out with him. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, backstage before the show that night, they got into a fist fight. And um, so this was the first time on Caddyshack that they had spent any time together since that, you know, mm-hmm. punches were thrown. And a lot of people thought, you know, like, I have no idea. Maybe that's why they didn't even right. write a, a scene for them together because they <laughs> thought it would be too toxic. Sure. But, um, you know, when they did do the scene together, both of them talk about how, uh, you know, that sort of thawed the ice a little bit because both of them are so good at what they do. You can't help but sort of admire what the other person's doing. Sure. So what's really interesting about the movie is uh, Ramis, the director, had basically decided he's just going to try to elicit great performances and great lines and go with funny ideas throughout the movie. And then when the filming was all done, he sort of realized it was a bit of a mess. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, when you don't follow the script, you can get amazing things, but then you get to the editing room, and it's like, how do these pieces all fit together? It's like having a jigsaw puzzle with, like, half of the pieces. Um, So they freaked out in the editing room. They were like, how are we going to turn this into a movie? And the first cut of the movie was four hours long. It was a total mess. It didn't make sense. You know, like, none of the scenes related to the scene before it or after it. No one knew where half the things went. And um, so what they decided, or what one of the producers, this guy John Peters decided, was that, you know, this gopher that was in only one scene that they shot, he's like, well, why don't we make the gopher sort of appear a bunch of times in the movie and he can sort of connect mm-hmm. these unconnected scenes, you know, we just have him running throughout the movie. It can be a recurring thing. So they had to go back and, and go to the studio hat in hand and, and sort of ask for some beg for some more money to shoot these gopher scenes after the fact. And they did, and they built an animatronic gopher. This guy who worked on Star Wars built this animatronic gopher. And they shot these scenes that made it all tie together. I mean, Ramis actually hated the idea of the gopher. He just thought it sort of cheapened the film. Sure. And, and you know, but I think in a way, the gopher's the thing that saved the movie. But it's funny, um, the the finished product that was screened to audiences and, and certainly seen by critics, and then ultimately, you know, was seen by the general public, it was okay it was kind of it received tepid reviews but was certainly not a breakout hit yeah so we'll explain that first reaction then then obviously the next question is like when did it turn a corner and become this huge cultural uh significant it took a while yeah i mean cat when caddyshack came out in the summer of 1980 uh there had been already two pretty big comedies in theaters that did a lot better Mm -hmm. one was the blues brothers and one was airplane and caddyshack was sort of Everyone thought this was going to be the next Animal House because of the people involved with it, and this is going to beat those other two, and and that's not what happened. Uh, the movie came out, and the critics really dogpiled on it. There were a couple of lukewarm reviews, but they were mostly pretty negative. There was one, I think, in the Hollywood Reporter that compared it to like an outhouse, you know, like mm-hmm. reviewing an outhouse. Uh, people just didn't think it was funny. And weirdly enough, a lot of the reviews singled out Bill Murray as being, like, the worst part of the movie, which, like, all these years later, it's, like, impossible to even fathom. But, yeah, so the the reviews weren't good. Um, And at the box office, it did pretty well. It did okay. Not not remarkable. It it cost $6 million to make. It ended up making just shy of $40 million, which is solid. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, no one was in any rush to sort of... Uh, declare it, you know, the second coming of Star Wars or anything like that. So uh, it really was only over time. I think, you know, 
what happened back then, I, I don't know if, how old you are, but if you remember VHS at all, mm-hmm. like when, when, you know, with thank the, you for thinking that I wasn't old enough to remember well, the VHS. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. I don't you know. So <laughs> I, I can admit that I like very, very well remember like the whole era of like your VCR <laughs> and like in our house, we had three or four videotapes because they were so expensive mm-hmm. that you would just, that you owned and you would just play them until they were, you know, like just scotch t- you know threads sure. um and people did that with caddyshack it just sort of took time for people to appreciate the movie uh and rewatch it and and it became eventually sort of a cult movie mm-hmm. um you know we think of it as if you asked anyone now like was caddyshack a, caddyshack a hit they would say of course it was right but it really wasn't, it wasn't right it really wasn't so it was only sort of, you know, with word of mouth and VHS and all that that it became a big yeah. deal. I wonder how much of it's also like it's it's held up in ways that they might not have anticipated then, like certain some of these cultural stereotypes and about, you know, stuffy members of clubs and caddies, yeah. all these things that could have been just kind of fleeting for that p- point in time, but actually ended up being very much uh, a truism, you know, 20, 30 years later as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of timeless in that way. I mean, it, it's... You know, it's it's going to be pretty easy to lampoon rich people forever. Right. Um, although you could argue, in a way, that like golf has become such a much a much more democratic sport than it was back then. Right. You know what I mean? I think that to some degree, in you know the the '60s and '70s, golf was very much like a, a conservative rich man's pastime, and now it's become sure sort of open to a much broader broader uh you know group of players and and audiences and and the popularity is across the board so i think in what they were satirizing in some ways is is not as sure you know but but yeah i think that it's timeless so when you spend as much time with a with a subject matter as this there's two ways you can go one is that you come to um, despise the topic because you're just sick of it and one is you come to appreciate it and maybe for you it was a combination of the two so like how w- what is your appreciation for Caddyshack after spending X number of years sort of delving in head first yeah well I mean I I, it, it, I will never get tired of Caddyshack uh, it's you know when I tell people I'm a film critic they, they assume automatically that you know when they ask me my favorite films that I'm going to say like you know some art house movie by Fellini or whatever <laughs> or like you know Vertigo or or something like that, you know, some some highbrow movie. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is you know, as I grew up, you know, in the in the seventies and eighties, uh, my favorite movies are are Caddyshack and Stripes and Animal House and you know, uh, Vacation and the John Hughes movies. And so that to me um, made it something I really wanted to write about and never got tired of. I mean, I, I watched the movie again um, preparing for this interview two nights ago. And I just, you know, yeah, sure. They, they, you know, there are parts. It's not. Look, there are parts of the movie that aren't great, of course. You know, but it's a really good movie. Right. It's a really funny movie. I think part of the charm of the movie is some of the imperfections. Like it's not, you know, start to finish uh, seamless. Like yeah. there's some sort it's of kind of a mess. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, right. And and like that was a, you know, it was kind of an amalgam of all these different parts, and somehow it works. But yeah. it's not like it's. Uh, expertly crafted together. No, it's it's you know Harold Ramis called it his six million dollar f- scholarship to film school because right. he was so so green he didn't even know which end of the camera to look through you know on his first day of shooting or so, you know that's what they said and um, it's not a well made movie but uh, it makes no difference it's just really really funny yeah and it catches these comedians at the peak of their powers 
Um, Doug Kenny, we should mention because his story is sort of the sad epilogue, which yeah. was maybe you can talk a little bit about where he was while the movie was being made and then what happened after it, it sort of came out. Yeah, so Doug was, um, you know, I think I, I of all the people I interviewed, um, you know, like I said, like 60 or 70 people, uh, to a person, uh, they would all say that Doug Kenny was the smartest, funniest person they've ever met. And... Um, you know, it's a it's a sad story. I don't you know, I don't want to like tip the hand too much on on his his fate. But, you know, it's a public record. So anyway, w- while Caddyshack was being made, um, he was he was a cocaine addict. And so he was doing a lot of drugs. And especially after the movie, when he, they were sort of making a lot of concessions with the producers mm-hmm. in the studio, he hated the gopher. He hated the gopher. Right. He you know, he hated the poster. He hated, you know, I mean, he, the reviews really stung him pretty bad because he had never tasted failure. I mean, the guy had had one success after another. And um, he became pretty depressed after Caddyshack. And um, he, in an attempt to sort of clean up uh, from drugs, he and Chevy went to Hawaii to get away from the bad press of the reviews and all of that. And it was the month after the movie came out. And they were there for a while, you know, just like, chilling out and trying to get clean but that didn't last for long mm-hmm. and so they ended up doing drugs and and Chevy talks about this a lot and uh, and so Chevy had to get back to LA to, to work on a film and, and so Doug was left in Hawaii all alone and uh, he went missing and um, a few days later they found his body at the bottom of a cliff and no one really knows uh, if he jumped or if he slipped or Harold Ramis joked that maybe he slipped looking for a place to jump. Um, you know, it's it's a sad end of the story, mm-hmm. but it really marks the end of a chapter in comedy. Um, and uh, it's it's to me, his story is really the through line of the whole book. Um, he's someone that I feel like everyone should know more about just because um, he was so brilliantly funny. And um He's sort of the heart of the sure. whole thing, yeah. And like you said, it's um, I mean, it's tragic in any circumstance, but also because at that point, a month after the movie came out, sort of the 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 jury was still out on Caddyshack, and yeah. over time, the you never got a chance to, to see it to, to see much. how great it was and how much people took it to their hearts, and would end up, you know, here we are, how many years later, and and people, you go to a party, and people. Well, you know, quote it. Or you're watching a golf match and someone yeah. says Noonan or whatever, you know. I mean, it's just Ten like, times a day in the golf match. Yeah, it's, it, offices, it's, right. it's yeah. just, it just, it's become a part of, of the language. And uh, I think if he saw that, he would have felt a little bit differently. For sure. Well, uh, Chris Nashawadi, um, a great book. Uh, I hope, I wish you the best of luck. Do you want to give it a quick plug on where people can buy it and all that? Yeah, anywhere bookstores are sold. Amazon, your local independent bookstore. It comes out uh, April 24th, and it's Flatiron Books, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Again, thanks to Chris Nashawati for joining us on this week's Golf Digest podcast. Uh, more on Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story, you can find on golfdigest.com. And uh, be sure to check back next week to the Golf Digest podcast to see who our guests are. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Until then. Mm